Welcome back to another edition of the ASAP Equal Podcast. I'm your host as always, Dr. Jason Woods. Today is one of the discussions that I'm the most excited to bring to you, partly because the speakers are so fantastic and partly because I'm all about anything that highlights the incredible resource that PAs and APRNs can be in the emergency department. We have two speakers today, the first of which is Ariana Sampson, who is a PA at Marshall Hospital and is an APP lead for U.S. Acute Care Solutions at Marshall Medical Center in Placerville, California. And Ariana has extensive experience with the use of buprenorphine to treat opiate use disorder in the emergency department, heavily done out of a fast-track setting and done by PAs and APRNs. Her counterpart today is Dr. Andrew Herring, who we have heard from before. He is the Associate Director of Research at Highland Hospital in the Alameda Health System in Oakland, California. He's also a Medical Director of the Substance Use Disorder Treatment Program there. You've heard from him before, talking about the use of buprenorphine after overdose. And he's here today to add his experience with working in a health system where PAs and APRNs really are the front line of treating opiate use disorder in their emergency department. So we're going to ask both of them to give us some lessons learned today, tell us where things have gone right, some things they wish they had done different, and to really hopefully convince all of you that this is just the way forward. It's, it's the way things are going to go. So I'm going to get out of the way. Ariana, why don't you start first and tell us how you got involved in any of this work? I wanted to talk to as many people as I can about how we are treating opioid use disorder specifically in our emergency department with buprenorphine. I first wanted to give a little bit of framework about how we are changing or revolutionizing the system of care. So the framework as it goes now in what we're doing in our emergency department is we provide 24-7 MAT access across the hospital. So not just in the emergency department, but also for our admitted patients. And what this does in turn is it really develops a culture of respect when we're offering treatment through outreach. And we are developing connections to our community and care. PAs and APRNs can absolutely have a huge role in this and, in fact, can even develop systems in the emergency department and definitely lighten the burden of treatment. And when I say burden, you know, what happened before we engaged our PAs and APRNs in this process in my own hospital is there was some burden. There's, there was a lot of inefficient processes that were being used to treat our patients with opioid use disorder. And when we changed that, we completely changed our system of care and have created an environment where it's very easy to treat patients, it's efficient, and it's really patient-centered care. Our patients that we treat have been very happy. And I think at both of our hospitals, Andrew, who really inspired my work at my own hospital, we took what he was doing and we made it work in a community hospital setting. So Andrew works in a more urban emergency department. I work in a community emergency department or a more rural setting. And we were really able to make this work in both settings just by addressing it and by utilizing our PAs and APRNs to drive a lot of this work. I did want to hear how you initially utilize PAs and APRNs. So were they treating from the start? I heard you say that really there's a foundation of PAs and APRNs, but was there a moment when you had this idea where you handed it over to your PAs sure. and APRNs? Or you know, one happen? of the things in, that happened in our ER is as we got really crowded, paradoxically, a lot of the you know MacGyver ingenious kind of problem-solving parts of emergency medicine got pushed into our fast track and we became occupied by a lot of folks with less creative disease, how do we say, something like that, 
you know, they've got cholecystitis or they've got an infection and need to be admitted. Stuff that's pretty straightforward and they just occupy a bed forever. Where is the whatever, I've got a plastic toy stuck in my nose, how do I get it out? The sort of unexpected stuff is really happening in the chairs, in the fast track area. So that kind of spirit of emergency medicine, just being creative and using whatever you can to fix the situation in front of you, really that fire is almost burning most brightly in the low acuity areas of our ER. So the PAs have really moved into some of these advanced skill development, again, ahead of the MDs. So regional anesthesia is something of a passion for. And it's a great example is procedurally, the physician's assistants have really gotten into pushing the envelope on skill acquisition for regional anesthesia. And so this was just a different module for this approach of acquiring new skills and new ways to bring value to the department. So it was a natural fit. One individual in particular, Josh Luftig, who's like the most amazing guy in the world, you know, was just all over this. He, he saw the connection there. I had done regional anesthesia with him. The connection with pain and buprenorphine seems distant, but it's really not. It's like bup and blocks really go together. And we just started teaming up and going for it. But it wasn't formal, nothing formal about it at all. It was all just word of mouth, practicality, providing support to get waivers, and they just ran with it on their own in a very independent way. Yeah, I think that's pretty similar to, to my story. But I wanted to talk a little bit about Marshall. As I said, I was inspired by the work that Andrew was doing at Highland with Josh Luftig at the time. And really, before I, I met either of them, I was approached with a project. So story at Marshall, the APP lead there and very closely connected with my medical director. And my medical director at the time was transitioning to another role and just said, hey, there's a meeting I want you to show up at. Keep asking me to go to this meeting. And that meeting was actually uh, an outpatient clinic and just some stakeholders in the hospital who said, we want to change things in terms of what we're doing to treat opioid use disorder. And at the time, I had done a couple of projects. You know, I think a lot of us have been on these lean projects. We've been on Kaizen projects, and that had been my role with opioids. So we were checking cures reports. We were talking about alternatives to opioids. We kind of started in that realm and we came up with some lean projects, which honestly, I felt like I wasn't getting to the heart of the issue at the time. And when I showed up to this meeting regarding buprenorphine in the emergency department, the first things out of my mouth was, oh, that's illegal. We don't do that in the ER. That's you know how I'd been trained and really how I'd practiced for the prior 17 years. But what was interesting about that moment is I considered really how we were treating patients with opioid use disorder. And the first thought to me was, gosh, I'm not really proud of how I'm treating patients with opioid use disorder. And I didn't feel like we were giving adequate treatment. My patients were there for a long period of time, and they were really sick. And it seemed like nothing I did really made them significantly better. There was a lot of labs, IVs. And then, you know, our, our referral process, I just hand a list and say, good luck. I work at a, a rural, again, community hospital, so there are no other ERs necessarily that patients go to. So really, my patients would end up coming back to me and saying, you know, these clinics on this list aren't taking patients for six months, or they're four or five hours away from here. I, I can't there. What do I do? And I really didn't have any answers. When I went to this meeting, you know, all the things that I first thought is, oh, this would be too hard. We can't do this. This is illegal. There was an answer to everything, and the answers were, not only is this legal, this, this is evidence-based medicine. This is working in other settings. 
I really, at that point, thought, why wouldn't I do this? I'm really not proud of what I'm doing now. So we engaged very quickly. I went to that meeting in May. We started our program in July, and we treated our first patient in August of 2017. The initial push was for our four, at the time, full-time PA and APRN to get their X waivers. But when I started the education process, I really decided we needed to start this sooner than just waiting for an X waiver. We didn't need to wait for the X waivers. We could administer buprenorphine at that moment. So we pushed pharmacy to stock it and we started giving it. And so we started our first patient in August of 2017. What's interesting is all of the things that I thought would happen. You know, I really thought, hey, this is the bread and butter of PAs and APRNs in the EET. These are the patients that we treat frequently. Then I thought, well, what if, you know, we have a line out the door for buprenorphine? What if people are coming in just to get buprenorphine? And none of that, I mean, I want them to come in to get buprenorphine. So my entire thinking changed by treating patients with an effective medication. And when I looked at the data after almost one year, I realized we weren't overwhelmed. We treated 38 patients in that time. And I didn't look back initially. I was just doing the work. It didn't feel big. It didn't feel burdensome. It actually felt more efficient and it felt really a lot better to treat patients with the right medication. And we spent 92% of our patients followed up. I don't think I have those statistics for any other medical problem um, where 92% of my patients were really going to their follow-up appointment treatment, which for us, we just made it very simple and had a standing appointment at a clinic the next morning, every day at 8.30 a.m., And so it was really easy, 24-7, we could just give them the appointment. And then the other thing that really shaped our culture change in our emergency department is we found that 74% of our patients were still in treatment at the end of this 49-week data collection period. So most of our patients were still getting treatment just from that one moment in the emergency department. They were given the right medication at the right time and a very simple follow-up structure. And we did this without any labs. We did this in our fast track and typically in patients that we'd be able to see in discharge in less than a couple of hours, sometimes much less than that. I wanted to go through a case because I've heard a lot of PAs and APRNs and medical directors ask, well, what does this look like? Give me the entire start to finish of what this looks like in your emergency department using PAs and APRNs. So I wanted to hear from your point of view, Andrew, a simple case. This is a 28-year-old man who snorts two grams of heroin a day, used to be maintained on 24 milligrams of bupe, said that actually worked for him. He had lapsed, he started using again, and he said he felt really sick and needs bupe. Now, I have to say, in my emergency department prior to starting a program, this was very frustrating. This was a patient that nobody wanted to see. We didn't really know what to do with. We didn't feel like we had any answers. And we'd give our you know, infamous list of clinics that had six-month waiting periods. Um, we'd give supportive medications, you know, clonidine, Zofran, start IVs, give him fluids because he was really sick, vomiting, dehydrated, et cetera. Andrew, when this patient comes into Highland, what do you do? I'm going to back up and just put some context here in that this patient is a product in that this patient was created by having an ER that is good at treating opiate use disorder and has an acceptance and respect for people who use drugs and a commitment to using medications for opiate use disorder or buprenorphine. Because if you don't have those things, this patient doesn't present like this. This patient presents with flu-like symptoms, with back pain, with nausea, vomiting, or some other complaint. They don't tell you that they were on bupe. They don't tell you that they need bupe. All of those things are going to be hidden. 
And that's one of the incredible efficiencies of being honest, of being authentic, and of actually just treating this like a medical disorder versus bringing a ton of ridiculous cultural baggage to a medical problem. So if you are judgmental, if you are a jerk, if you think that this is a moral failing that needs discipline and adherence and compliance and all of these things, and that you should be really just kicking on your own, this person doesn't come to your ER at all, or they come in in all kinds of hidden terms that you have to tease out and do CT scans and laboratories to eventually find out, oh, this is opioid withdrawal. Developing that culture is the key. And physician's assistants are the way to do that because they have such a massive impact on just the general culture of your ER. How do the security guards, technicians, triage nurses, all of that, how do they actually interact with folks? A lot of that's really driven by modeling that's done by the physician's assistants. So if they see the physician's assistants doing things in a certain way, they're going to really fall in line. So this is a setup. We all know that if one of the best predictors of success with buprenorphine is previous exposure to buprenorphine. It really doesn't matter what that exposure could be. Maybe it's his dad who had buprenorphine prescribed to him. Maybe it's his buddy, you know, who knows? But if you've taken buprenorphine even just once, it means it's going to be much easier to take it again. So here you've got a guy, he's coming in with the heroin usage. He gives you a dose. He tells you what he needs. This is a patient at Highland. I'm never going to see them. Because what I'm going to hear is, oh, hey, I saw a guy, he's going to follow up with your clinic on Tuesday. And that's it, because the physician will have ordered 24 milligrams right off the bat, and he will have gotten it and have been discharged before I have a chance to even meet him. So what this looks like in my emergency department now is if this patient comes in, sometimes they were maintained on uh, buprenorphine and from other sources, but this patient will come through triage, and the culture has changed so much that in triage, my triage nurse will say, oh, we can help you, you know, and we'll actually, we have substance use navigators and put them right away. Within 10 or 15 minutes, we're trying to get buprenorphine on board because we know how easy it is to treat this patient, how quickly they will improve. And then we have a setup appointment time. And so this is a really simple case in my emergency department as well. The patient comes through triage, we order buprenorphine, our nurse gets the medication to them extremely quickly, because most of the time, of course. And then the patient already has an appointment the next day that's sort of preset, has all of the information. And, you know, we give an excellent dose so the patient feels better. And we also give prescriptions. 95% of our clinicians now are ex-wavered, including our physicians. So we started this with our PAs and nurse practitioners. So, and then they're discharged home. This is a really simple patient in our emergency department. I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of what I talked about from the beginning. I started this whole process, we were doing, you know, I call it lean bupe, right? You know, I did a lean task force on how we can treat opioid use disorder. And we did all sorts of things really tiptoeing around this. Well, the lean part of our opioid program was buprenorphine through our fast track. Uh, Those were the only things that we found really in the end were value added steps of us who have been on these lean committees. So the two most important things for lean buprenorphine, first of all, having your PAs and APRNs doing this work in the front of the ED, even through fast track, if or even through triage, if you staff your triage with PAs and APRN. But really, the first thing was reassurance. Now our triage nurses provide reassurance. First thing that a lot of my triage nurses will say is, oh, we can help you with that. We've got you. You know, we've got great medication. We have a referral process. 
you know, my PA is going to see you in the next 10, 15 minutes, right? So just psychological relief that the withdrawal is going to be treated, it's going to be treated effectively, and it's going to be treated in a really kind, compassionate, patient-centered way. And then just doing that is treating patients quickly, and they feel better. They're given buprenorphine, and patients feel better. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times our patients have thanked us and said, you saved my life because we just, their withdrawal very quickly and are keeping them from craving. We're really, and giving them very easy, simple follow-up. So thus far, we have talked about the experience and the inspirational story of starting this incredible program. But I've got to ask, what about the data? Do you have any evidence that this is working? I don't always look at our data. I've tried to prove this part of it and through the California Bridge Program. We've, we've had a little more success getting our, our data together. But something I wanted to share is after three years, so we have a more mature program right now, you know, 95% of my PAs, APRNs, and physicians are x wavered Why? Because it's easier. It's another part of that lean process when the patient is not necessarily ready to receive their dose because they just use, we can provide a prescription. And so in the last year, as we started providing prescriptions and we, we have a substance use navigator who also helps with a lot of other things that our patients have in terms of barriers to get to care, our numbers improved. So just at our rural you know, community hospital, we treated 119 patients with opioid use disorder. So that came up tripled. But still not an overwhelming number. Still represents like less than 1% of the patients that we see in our emergency department. And our follow-up rate has improved. So we have two clinics now who are providing care. And we just, a third has asked us to start referring. So we have clinics asking us to send them patients now because this has been so effective. And we have a 97% follow-up rate. 82% of our patients have remained in treatment at one month. And we're a large county. Our clinics are 45 minutes away from where some people live, the closest clinic. And yet we had 82% of our patients who are still in treatment at one month. 65% of all of our 2019 starts were still in treatment when we checked in February of 2020. So when we look back, the vast majority of these patients received treatment from a PEA or an APRN. And many of these were in our fast track area. Most of these visits lasted less than two hours with the patient treated effectively with excellent follow-up. So this really can create a lean system in your emergency department where you're not only treating with evidence-based treatment, really standard of care treatment, but we're doing the right thing for our patients and we're making them feel better, which all of us in the end want to do the right thing and, and make patients feel better. We can do this really effectively upfront in our fast track you know, I've started patients from our triage area when things were busy just to get them medication on board. So what has this done in my county? Well, I think if we're in a county where there's only two hospitals and the, the other hospital is pretty far away from us, and we do the vast majority of the treatment with buprenorphine and prescribing. And I can't completely take credit, but what we found when we looked back at our county level data is that our 12-month buprenorphine prescription rates have continued to increase. And what happened during the same period of time is we had a 24% decrease in opioid overdose deaths, you know, mortality during that time. So from 2016, 2018, so this is after we started our program, started giving buprenorphine, again, capturing that moment when the patient is ready for treatment. Again, this was being done primarily through our fast track with our PAs and APRNs. So before anybody says anything, we are aware that correlation is not causation, but this is an impressive decrease in opioid overdose deaths. It may not be solely because of this program, and you can't really assign any definitive causality, but it's a compelling reason to look hard at this program and ones like it 
as a possible reason for the decrease in deaths that they noted locally. So I've looked at a lot of the data and our physician who works overnight, I didn't realize how much buprenorphine she was able to give in that period, you know, primarily night socks, because sometimes people are ready at two in the morning. So it's been really effective to get everybody on board. But again, we were able to do this by really empowering our PAs and APRNs to, to give this life-saving treatment up front and in the fast track. I think one of the last things that we need to bring up is when did PAs and APRNs become eligible to become X wavered? And how does that timing fit with your program and when it started and where we're at as far as total numbers right now? PAs and APRNs were permitted to obtain these waivers beginning in 2016. So it's really only been over the last four years. I think there was a little bit of a slower start to this. JAMA did a research article and cited the number of clinicians that were X wavered. And they actually found that in some of the states that had expanded scope of practice, they had increased numbers of APRNs that were X waivered. But data from 2018 showed that just a little more than 5% of physicians had X waivers, um, a little more than 3% of APRNs had X waivers, and, and you know only over 1.5% of PAs had X waivers. So I know that I have my work cut out for me, and, and we have our work cut out for us in terms of making sure that the essential resource in our emergency room that we have X waivered and educated PAs and APRNs are doing this work. What I also know is that, you know, 10% of all practicing PAs do work in emergency medicine, about 5.5% of APRNs work in care. So it's about the same number of PAs and APRNs who work in emergency medicine or acute care. And most emergency departments have PAs and APRNs on staff. ASAP was over 90%. So a few take-home points. What we know is patients in the emergency department already has substance use disorder right now, just as Andrew was discussing. We need to treat them. When a lot of our patients find out that we have treatment, it really creates a better process for the patient and for us as clinicians in that we are able to address the problem very quickly, treat effectively and efficiently, and do the right thing in terms of referral. Most patients, again, can be treated in our fast-track area by PAs and APRNs. No labs are required. We don't do labs. We don't do drug screens. We simply treat the patient in front of us, and we've done this very effectively. Acute care initiation is really straightforward, completely within scope of PAs and APRNs. There are different laws in different states that can be looked at, but again, PAs and APRNs can get X waivers in every single state and can administer this medication in every single state. Signage in the emergency department allows patients to self-disclose. And again, we can avoid the workups. So it's really important to empower your PA and your APRN colleagues to treat opioid use disorder in the emergency department. It really can change culture. It really creates a welcoming emergency department. And actually, there's PAs and APRNs that I work with who told me this changed the course of their career. They were suffering burnout and felt like there was a lot of friction between patients that really starting this program has alleviated a lot of that burden. And just doing the right thing has been a great satisfier for our PAs and APRNs in, in my emergency department anywhere. That's a really good place to leave it here. You've heard from two incredible people about programs that seem to be working really well using PAs and APRNs to help address opiate use disorder and substance use disorder. They have some compelling data. It needs to be studied further, but I think this is a real possibility for one solution to this growing problem. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of the ASAP Equal series at the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com, or by taking a look earlier on in this feed. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd. You can email me at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com.
If you've got any questions for the guests or things that you'd like to hear, please let me know. I really appreciate anybody that helped keep the conversation going.